Welcome to the third episode of Regulate Tech with me, Nicholas Baird-Lumblad and Richard Allen. And uh, today's episode, we're going to discuss nudity, right? Exactly. Yes. This is a this this might seem as a a narrow issue, but the reality is that I think in nudity policy, you get a lot of the really hard questions about content moderation, and you get a lot of the really hard questions about content moderation and cultural differences, don't you? Exactly. And I think what I find um, particularly interesting is that with many of the other harms that we're dealing with, in a sense, they're quite straightforward. You know, this stuff is bad, always bad. And and so when you're thinking about your policy, it's how do I get rid of the bad stuff? With nudity, you know, it can be entirely benign. It can be extremely harmful. There's just this sort of massive array of, of different aspects to, to nudity policy. And so I think teasing that out, and there's this sort of recurrent theme that if you're going to talk about a harm, don't just assume that everybody means the same thing, but but be really precise and try and tease out what the harms are, uh, and what the harms are if you if you suppress content, but equally, you know uh, what the harms may be if you uh, allow the contents. So you've, you've got to kind of uh, tease out those two aspects to any particular harm. But you end up in a place also where you're required to be incredibly specific. I mean, the the oversight board uh, at Facebook announced five decisions uh, this past week, and they're now taking on the the much uh, perhaps more complex issue of the the Trump deplatforming. But in one of these, uh, the subject matter was nudity. Now, the the question at hand was whether or not the oversight board should take it up. But they also opined on uh, the nudity policy, specifically around uh, showing female nipples in breast cancer awareness programs. And they said in their their outcome, in their decision, they said, well, we suggest that you add to the policy that it's okay to show female nipples in contexts that have to do with breast cancer awareness. That's such a level of specificity that do you think that's necessary? Did you have to end up at that level? Or do you think that you you could find some more abstract or general way to talk about nudity? I mean, certainly my experience has been that that um, platforms tend to come up with these very broad policies initially. We ban hate speech, we ban nudity, <clears throat> we ban some some kind of harm. And then what happens over time is that, that people come up with all of these um, hard cases. And so you've said, we're going to ban nudity, which, which sort of seemed pretty straightforward when you came up with the policy. And then someone comes along and says, yes, but what about in the context of breastfeeding or health awareness or some other context where I think most of us would say that that actually should be fine. And then you need to go back to, so you end up sort of adding these exceptions and exceptions and sometimes exceptions to the exception. So policies become more complicated over time. But then you do need to go back to first principles and say, why did you have that policy at all? Um, And and in some cases, it it is a matter of quite deep principle. Uh, You know, as a platform, we we stand against uh, hatred between different segments of society and therefore we ban hate speech as sort of issue a principle within that. Sometimes it's actually it's much more pragmatic. Um, you know, the policy is as it is because that's the only way we can make it enforceable. And I think in nudity, actually you're much more in that zone, that the policies are pragmatic policies rather than you know, it's not the case that certainly the people I work with in Silicon Valley are a bunch of prudes who who think, as a matter of principle, we we think nudity is immoral and therefore we don't want it. It's much more about the practical aspects of what happens if you permit certain forms of content. 
Yeah, but on the other hand, I mean, I remember vividly a discussion I had with an official in Brussels that essentially took me aside and we were having another conversation and said, you know, it's really very strange so that you allow for all these things, but you're not allowing for, for, for nudity or you seem to be deathly afraid that you would, would show a woman's nipple. I mean, all of this is just about imposing American norms on the world. That's That's been a criticism that we've heard quite often, isn't it? It, it right. is, and, and I, think it's, I think it's actually misplaced um, because I think there's something... Um, more straightforward going on and, and again we can look at different platforms but but I think this concept that that a lot of us in tech world are used to of NSFW not 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 safe for work not suitable for work actually applies to a lot of the thinking around nudity on the major platforms and and so for Facebook it's it's NS triple F not suitable for friends and family and in other words if I'm scrolling through a news feed of my content for my friends and family Actually, it's not strictly new content, but it's sexualized content that I don't want to be interspersed into that newsfeed. Similarly, if if I'm at work Googling for something at work, I actually don't want sexualized content to come back in those search results. It's, it's uncomfortable. Um, and, and so I think there's much more of that going on, just that for a lot of services that you're using in, in, in sort of semi-public contexts, where um, the other content on the service, in particular, to think about it like Facebook, like, you know, um, it's just, I would find it really uncomfortable to have photos of sexualized news sort of popping in in between stories for my friends and family. So you can see why from a, a sort of service design point of view, they don't want nudity. I really don't think it's a, it's a kind of moral prudish thing. I think that's just, just a misunderstanding. And actually, there was plenty of evidence that I saw that um, people in Europe, people in permissive countries where, you know, you're very comfortable stripping off and getting in the sauna with lots of other people, they still don't necessarily want that in a their... Bit of Nordic, <laughs> a bit of Nordic bashing here, I think. And, <laughs> no, I mean, and there were some people who would really challenge us, actually typically from, from Nordic countries. There was, there was a, a guy in, in Denmark who, who had some wonderful photos of naked hippies that, that he felt very strongly should be allowed on on the platform and, and fair play to him. But as I say, even in the most liberal countries, you find that when you ask users what makes you uncomfortable, what what do you want to see, what don't you like seeing, they still feel very uncomfortable about nudity, particularly sexualized content, in their social media feeds that they may be browsing through in a public place and, and they say contains this, this kind of, is adjacent to content where you wouldn't normally want <laughs> sexualized content next to to. Even then, they feel uncomfortable. So, say it's not, it's not. Is there room for nudity on the internet? Yes, um, but do people generally want nudity in their social media feeds or in their search results? I think generally no, um, and they're very comfortable going to other places to get that kind of content. And there's, but there's another aspect of this criticism, right? If you if you frame it as this is platforms in in imposing American norms on the world, what one of the one of the parts of that is American norms, right? These are American norms, and you can say, and I think you're right to say that these are not American norms; they're contextual norms. They're about contexts that you that you consume content in. Uh, but the the other part of that that I find interesting is this notion of imposition, the fact that it is the platform making the decisions. Now, both of you and I will remember 
is something that, that the kids of today will mercifully have forgotten, which is the PICS standard. Um, the PICS standard was sort of discussed within the, the web, uh, World Wide Web Consortium as a way to solve the issues of content moderation, but not at the core of the network, not at the platform level, but actually at the edges of the network. The idea was that every page would essentially specify down to whether or not it was a cloth or not cloth, gay sex, for example, and then you could build filters at the edge of the network that would care, take care of this. In fact, almost all of the early internet discussions were around filters and filtering at the edges of the network. What, what happened, and was it a good thing that it happened, that this actually crept in towards the core? Was that Because it was never a conscious decision. Why did that happen? No, I, I mean, I, th- I think a lot of things for the internet, actually, and this is perhaps a broader conversation, but they're, they're sort of designed on the assumption that people are going to, going to be sort of sensible, rational actors and follow a particular um, standard that's been set. And they, they tend to be designed for relatively small, well-behaved communities. I mean, you could, you could argue the whole, the whole thing of email. The challenge we have with email is it was designed to be very open within a small, well-behaved community of academics. You put it into the wild and you get all of these people just throwing spam. And there's now more spam crossing the email pipes than there is real email. And the same thing, I think, so happens with content, that if you design a system that assumes that people are going to properly label their content and and, and sort of behave correctly when they, they put it out there so that your filters at the edge all work, that design breaks down once you start getting out to a mass audience and you find that there are, and again, um, sex cells. You know, so you come up with a standard like that where you expect everyone to label stuff. And, and yes, um, certain mainstream producer content will dutifully label their content so you know how sexual it is or not. There's a bunch of other people who are thinking, if I can get clicks and eyeballs, I'm going to make some money here. I'm not going to label my content. I'm going to find, you know, 100,000 ways to get around all of these filters uh, to try and get my sexy content in front of people because then I'm going to make some money. And so I think yeah, and, that, and that is the challenge. That's what pushes it back to the platform. And I think the other thing that happened with Pix was that it was horribly, horribly uh, opinionated, not to say biased, not to say bigoted, because it sort of ended up describing all kinds of things that were not really, um, I don't think, not really uh, objectionable in any way. But but you can you can come back to the question in a new form and say, you, you know, look, Google has some of this, uh, safe search, for example. You can activate what you want to see in your search results or not. Why is there not like a safe feed uh, option, for example, on Facebook or or similar on Twitter or any other platform where you, where you could push a little bit of this out to the user, to the edges of the network, whereas all of the all of the actual filtering that requires heavy processing, you know, great programming, all that stuff actually remains at the core. Yeah, I mean, there is a theoretical model. I think it's really helpful, perhaps, if we break down the potential harms that are caused by nudity. Once we work through those, you can then understand what you would need to do to be able to do that safely. And I actually think it's a much more complex problem than many people think. I certainly understand when someone says, look, you know, uh, for me, this is entirely harmless and benign and you're interfering with my freedom of expression. I understand why that's frustrating. But let, let's just sort of work through the harms or the potential harms. And I think that perhaps the, the most significant one is that images are shared that, that are non-consensual. And I think we should be um, really sensitive to that. In, in some cultures, probably yours and mine, a non-consensual picture of you nude might cause mild embarrassment, uh, perhaps a little worse. In, for some people in some contexts, 
non-consensual sharing of a, uh, an image of them uh, naked could lead to really, really serious consequences, include, including threats to life. And we should be really clear about that. And I've come across instances where even, you know, bikini photos, where somebody's wanted to, to attack somebody in some countries, the sharing of bikini photos of a woman, and it's mainly women who are the targets of this, then becomes, you know, quite a serious uh, threat to their well-being and potentially, as I say, to, to their life in the most extreme cases. So this non-consensual thing is critical and is really hard. So, so the first thing a platform would have to do is to ensure that images that are being shared, are uh, that's happening in a consensual way. And you can see, you know, some technology may help with that where you try and, if there is a face in the picture, you face match the picture with the owner of the account and perhaps can then assume that they're sharing willingly. Um, but in many cases, it'll be a third party sharing a naked image of somebody else. So, you know, how do you establish that the consent is there? Um, and I've noticed actually the, the ongoing debate around some of the pornography sites that are going through exactly this exercise now where people, I think, are correctly saying, you know, it, it, where you accept pornography, you don't have a moral objection. It's, it's, it's fine to produce pornography, willing producers and willing consumers, but we want to know that they're willing producers and therefore we want to know that people have consented to, to have those images go out. So think about that multiplied a thousand, a million fold on a major platform where for every image that they permit, they now do need to, to do some due diligence to make sure that there is consent. Um, and people may say, well, you know, that's over the top. Why would you have to do that? Well, you know, if they get it wrong a few times, uh, and given the seriousness of the consequences, you can bet people will be coming straight back at the platforms going, why the hell did you allow that nudity? Um, because people are now sharing stuff, you know, without consent, and some bad things have happened to people um, because of that. So I think that's the first challenge. Uh, how do we deal with this consent question? And I say it's it's non-trivial. Um, perhaps the, the second challenge then is the age question, uh, and again, not straightforward, and particularly when you're talking about teenagers and the, the difference in age of the person in the image by literally a few months could be the difference between the sharing of that content being a very serious criminal offence um, and the sharing of that content being entirely legitimate. Um, so again, platforms have to figure out a way if they're allowing new content to make sure that it is a 19-year-old, not a 15-year-old in a picture. Uh, and they say to get that wrong and allow the distribution of the 15-year-old's pictures would be uh, really, really problematic. So consent and age, uh, absolutely critical. Um, and I think those two in, on, on their own <laughs> uh, represent a major challenge. Where, and so the platforms in many cases have taken the easy way out, which is to say, we're just not going to allow you to do it at all because then we don't have to take responsibility for age checking and for um, uh, making sure that the consent is there. And then I'd say the, the final aspect, which which is uh, critical, and we perhaps sometimes when we talk about nudity, I think we need to distinguish there is sexualized nudity and there is some plain nudity. So in, in very sort of crude terms, if I am on a beach and I take a photo of myself and my bits out on the beach and I share it, um, I would argue that's not sexualized nudity. That's just here I am on a beach. Um, but I might be in a different pose or doing something different that might make that into uh, something that most people would recognise as, as kind of sexualized nudity. Um, so that also matters. Uh, and again, you think particular pictures of children, 
I mean, the, the sort of archetypal picture that all of our parents have of us, of us sitting naked in the bath, giggling, um, you know, that is an entirely innocent photo. And I'm, again, people get very upset and say, why platforms are you taking that down? You're the pervert platform because you're assuming it's sexualized. Well, no, I think the platform recognizes that those kind of photos are not sexualized uh, or we assume we can reasonably assume they're not, but trying to distinguish that at scale, t- trying to say, well, this photo of a child, a naked child, is sexualized and this one isn't, it is exceptionally hard to do. And- it also presents an attack vector. To be to be really honest, one problem is that even non-sexualized pictures are sexualized by offenders who then find them and collate them and present them in a context that sexualizes them. So your innocent pictures of your kid may then turn up in what is a, a, a horrible context. And I think a, a lot of people have reacted to this historically when they've seen that. And I think that, that points to another problem or another difficulty in, in doing this, which is that the, the context may vary. And even if you take something that's very innocent, it can become extraordinarily offensive and even criminal uh, when aggregated or, or contextualized in another way, right? But that's right. And this is what sort of drives often the platforms back to the blanket ban. There is an, there's a paternalistic element. There's an element of sort of protecting you, uh, in a sense, from, from maybe things that you feel comfortable doing but are unwise. And again, I've, I've seen that where, you know, parents, some parents feel very, very offended if you take down... So photos that I would accept are entirely innocent of their children naked. They're really, really offended by that. But as and when there is a group on the platform that is taking these photos and distributing them, uh, you know, then then people are, are equally offended by that. And so, so that to an extent, the platforms are saying, whilst this may be entirely innocent when you do it, we can't allow you to do it because there is a risk that that content will be abused sort of downstream. And we've seen that risk and therefore will protect you from yourself. And so, so I think there is a large element of that in the nudity policy in particular. Um, and again, you could equally say, you know, argue um, people posting photos of themselves, even if they're adults, uh, when they're older teenagers and, and they could legally do that, that that, that might be unwise uh, further down the track. And so again, there's perhaps a paternalistic element where where platforms, by having this blanket ban, they're, they're, they're not they're not opening up the risk in any way that you then come back later and go, oh my god, you know, I kind of I want to withdraw my consent, but now it's too late um, because the images are out there. In a sense, you could say one of the reasons that is that it's being pushed back into the core to the platforms is that that's actually also where you uh, discover risk faster and where you learn about risks faster. So it's a centralized learning function that allows you to see what the attack vectors are for seemingly innocent content in different ways. Now, I, I say I, I don't think that frees you from the paternalistic element. I think it's still there. I think you know we could arguably think much more about what what could be pushed to the edges, but but I think that explains the the sort of gravity that that core content moderation exercises on the edges in a way. Um, so so let's I wanted to discuss another example that I was I, I would I just watched this as a distance, but I was really I was really curious and I, I see what light you can cast on this. And that's the Norway example. Yes. Um, uh, this is this is an example where you have to correct me if I'm telling this wrong, but there is a an iconic uh, photograph of um, uh, essentially a victim of war, uh, a young, I think it's a young woman, young, so young, young child, girl, yeah, young, young girl. girl who's naked and moving away from, from conflict. And, and that was blocked. How, what, tell me what, what happened. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, it's one of those interesting things, again, just uh, where things can sort of blow up 
uh, all of a sudden that Aftenposten, uh, a Norwegian newspaper, published this image and Facebook removed the image for contravening its policies on child nudity, which I say is a, is a blanket ban. Uh, there's no, no permitted child nudity there wasn't at the time. Interestingly, that they'd removed plenty of instances of that photo before. Other people had posted it and they'd removed it and nothing had happened. But in this case, there, there was a an editor of a newspaper who who decided to take this up and, and uh, decided that it was completely wrong of Facebook to to remove this particular image because it was a, a documenting you know an important event and it's in wide circulation anyway. Um, and and again, you saw the. Uh, a dynamic that we're both very familiar with of uh, you you get very defensive you explain your policy and there, there is a rationale the policy is look you know was then anyway uh we take down photos of naked children to protect them it's almost we haven't got the time to kind of sort out whether they're good or bad naked photos we're just going to take them all down and if occasionally that means we take down something like this photo that's a price worth paying for the overall safety uh, and that was that was the sort of counter argument Oh, well, then, then there was a legal counter-argument too, which is to say there's there's no legal carve-out for historic photos in, for example, child abuse sexual imagery laws, right? So there's that's not that I'm aware of. Although the general principle of most of those laws is that the, the assumption is that they are sexualized images. And so yeah. arguably, you know, I think it's very hard to argue this particular image was sexualized. So I don't think it would have broken the law um, in the same way that an innocent photo of your babies in the bath don't break the law. But but uh, you know Facebook was just saying look we're not going to sort sort out one kind of photo from another we're just going to take them all down, and so the the editor sort of picked it up, uh, signed up a bunch of other editors, and uh, as again we're aware maybe we'll talk about this in a future episode. Um, uh, <laughs> newspaper editors uh, 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 you know often have quite strong views about um, social media platforms uh, that, that are not entirely friendly always, and so they they picked this up as a cause, and again they had some substance to say you know why. Why the hell is Facebook censoring what we as newspapers can put into our newspapers? And they had a great, I mean, this is the bigger issue, but they had a great case study here because this image, most people would say, gosh, you're right, newspaper editors, you know, it's not, this isn't an image that, um, you know, platforms should be editing. So in the end, what happened was that Facebook then came up with an exception, one of these glorious exceptions. So you start with a blanket policy and the exception essentially says you are not allowed to publish photos of naked children. Um, but uh, if they ha- have some kind of you know, historical public significance, then we may permit them on a, on a case-by-case basis. Now, that, that's kind of extraordinarily hard to implement, um, frankly, because it does require all of your reviewers where this image may be you know, referred and um, if other people post it to, to kind of have an understanding of it. And you can imagine over time how complicated that would be you know the teacher reviewers to recognize this one image fine but imagine if we've now got 10 50 100 1000 uh, and so that starts to become a complex problem but the principle i think is established that there may be some images where the the public there's a public interest in allowing it to be displayed rather than allowing it to be removed whilst the baseline policy remains that it, the public interest is best served by generally removing naked photos of children. 
In this case, I remember, if I remember correctly, there was an escalation. And at some point, even the prime minister of Norway decided to post the image on her Facebook page. And it got removed, I think, right? That's right, yes. And so the the interesting thing about this is is not so much that, because I think that's what you would expect when you have a policy, you apply the policy, that was happened. That, that, That is what should happen, whether it's a prime minister or a regular citizen, right? But the interesting thing to me is that uh, ultimately when this changed, it all looked so horribly messy. Why would it take all of this discussion to get to that end point? And I think most people uh, would have said that that's, that's unconscionable. How can that be the case that you have to do all of this to get to these decisions? But I actually think that that's probably the way the change is happening in content moderation much more often than people realize and probably close to the most efficient way you can do changes in content moderation because you need to really hash through these decisions they need to be messy it's so i think you're right that there does need to be a a heated debate quite often i think one of the challenges is that there's often a real gap between the people inside the platforms and the people outside in terms of how much time they've spent looking at these things and their understanding of the complexity and that often only comes out after the event so there would have been in that instance people inside Facebook who had thought about uh, exceptions and how difficult that would be and understand all of the content moderation systems. And then, uh, but, but that learning hadn't been shared with the world. Uh, it's only shared with the world after the event. And that's where you end up with this sort of scramble where somebody goes, look, that thing you're doing platform, is it because you're incompetent or because you're evil? Because it's got to be one of the two. Like you, the thing you're doing is so stupid. I'm going to give you this choice. You're you're incompetent. Uh, you just haven't thought about this thing ever before, or you're malicious. You've thought about it, but you just you hate freedom of expression. <laughs> Whatever it is, and and the reality is the platforms actually uh, again they they have thought about it, and we can we can have our criticisms of them, but they do generally have serious professionals who who spend every minute of their waking day looking at these questions and debating things like, can we have an exception? Should we adjust the policy? The challenge is that that thinking then doesn't get out into the wider world because it's not in the wider world. We're having quite an unbalanced debate or we have a a messy debate after the event, after something has happened, rather than having it before. One of the ways I think we can address this is within the new regulatory frameworks that are likely to come up through the Digital Services Act in Europe and the Online Harms Bill in, in the UK, which is something that I've called a harm reduction plan. And at the heart of that is to to really define in detail, I'm going to keep banging on about this because I think it's so important, exactly what you as a platform think a harm is and what it is you're trying to do uh, to address it. And I think that's like really fundamental. So again, if we think of this this example, if you say, look, the harm we've identified is a very serious harm, which is images of child sexual exploitation being circulated. We have looked at this, and uh, whilst we recognize that images of some children can be entirely innocent, their parents can take them, they can be historically significant, we have not figured out a way to separate those out at scale, and therefore we're going to ban everything. And this is why, you know, we've explained exactly what the harm is and why we think this is the policy we've got is a necessary and proportionate response to that harm. That language is, is quite important. And then we can debate that, and the regulator can debate that, and the public can debate that and say, yeah, fine, you know, uh, if that's the only way to stop the child abuse, okay. Or they can say, well, why can't you separate out these important uh, images, historically important images from that, and really test the platforms and dig in uh, and put pressure on them. But I say that's all got to start with a shared understanding of the harm uh, 
and and the potential solutions that you could have to address it. And that, I think, is what's sort of missing from the debate. You sometimes get it, as I say, once once something's gone wrong and we've had a big furore, and that's exactly, you know, is the right role of the media. I mean, the media is there to, to push out um, oh, totally. hard issues and, and create those debates. But it, it does feel unfortunate um, that it has to be done sometimes in that way rather than being done in a in a sort of more uh, steady way. So it's like nobody pays attention for ages, then everybody pays attention for a short period of time, and then the attention moves on again. And that's not a great way to have consistent policies. Sorry. No worries. I got to turn it off. Uh, uh, we now all got to hear what your ring signal was. Is that for a specific person, or is that your generic ring signal? My generic one, and it's because... I kept missing my phone calls, and that's the only way that I can sort of make myself uh, uh, hear the phone call is that. And and even then, my kids are sometimes like flagged to me and go, "Oh, you've just missed a phone call." It's just like your phone's been ringing. And I've, I've well, Hungarian not- dance number five is a good one yeah. anyway. Yeah. Make sure you don't miss your. So right. moving on, I think one of the things I, I agree. So we're summing up: a harm-centric framework needs to be put in place. We need to quite in, in, in quite a lot of detail understand what the harms are when we're looking at nudity. Um, and but in a harm-centric, even in a harm-centric framework, uh, if we sort of posit that that's where we want to go, there are a couple of other questions that are interesting when it comes uh, not just to nudity but content overall. And one of them is. So it's it's assumed that all of this will happen in an automated way ex ante and that the platform will essentially take care of it. And that's what happens. Much less importance is being attached to the ability to overturn a decision and then get that content back up. Wouldn't it be... I mean, in the new legislation, it's quite clear that there is there is a lot of thinking about appeals, uh, about how to overturn decisions, etc. Uh, shouldn't we also look a little bit at that appeal opportunity rather than trying to get it 100% right? You could get it, what do I know, 80, 60% right even, and then have rigorous appeal uh, capabilities that allow you to put stuff up again. Wh- what about that feedback function? There's another way to sort of push it back out to the edges. I'm, I'm back at this question of how, how much can we actually also involve the broader community in this as not to end up in a situation where where content moderation is is uh, well to use your words paternalistically from the center yeah i mean i think there are uh, appeals have a role to play but i don't think we should overstate um their significance again my knowledge is a little little out of date but but i know i remember from the sort of quality control uh, audits that um, Facebook was doing certainly that they would be in the high nineties percent of you know decisions uh, being made that were actually consistent with their policy, and so 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 there's an appeal which is you've applied your policy wrongly. You should have permitted my content. You've um, prohibited it. Those I think are are going to come out. You know, or that they're going to overturn decisions quite infrequently. Much more common is I disagree with your policy. Uh, and so an appeal is of limited use if the if the you know you're 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 sort of repeating it you know why do you ban uh, all adult nudity I disagree with it I'm now appealing I want you to put my adult nudity back well if the policy is that you're you're really saying I I want to appeal your policy not appeal the decision um, and, and there I think there are some uh, you know real challenges around potentially sort of inconsistency if you started allowing appeals 
even when something is against the policy um, because it just sort of, you know, that person had, had complained enough, I think you then have a real problem. So this, this challenge... Isn't this what you, what you built with the oversight board, though, what Facebook built with the oversight board? Because that's an appeal of the policy, not of the application of the policy. Or is it both, perhaps? It, it's, actually, it's, it's, it's both, really. Well, well actually, no. Uh, it's actually something slightly more meta. Uh, the oversight board is saying has facebook applied its policies correctly and fairly uh, and all of its policies and and the spirit of its policies and the intent of its policy and so w- where it gets meta is that the oversight board may say look you've published the statement saying that this is how you intend to operate these are your values and your policy is operating in this way and there's an inconsistency for example between your values and the detail of a policy so it's not intended i think to to sort of rewrite the policy or to say you've got to change the policy, but it may point out inconsistencies that would then mean you have to go back and look at it. There's a good parallel, I think, with the European Convention on Human Rights, the way that works, that you know, uh, national governments get to write their laws. The European um, Court of Human Rights can point out where a national government has uh, implemented a law that's inconsistent with the commitments that it made under the European Convention, um, but the European Court of Human Rights doesn't get to rewrite national law. It gets to give an opinion as to whether the national law is consistent with a set of values. And I think that's, again, if you look at the judgments from the oversight board, what they're often doing is saying, hey, Facebook, this is you know, what you say you intend to do in terms of your human rights convention, your your approach. And here's where something you've done, here's where a specific item of your law, your legal code of community standards feels inconsistent with that. And we're going to tell you that, and we're going to, you know, overturn a specific decision, but also give an opinion on, on your legal code. So let's get back to nudity. I think one of the interesting things with nudity is that that it 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 shows us how enormously important it is when we discuss harms. To your point, to look at the kind of content we're looking at. Nudity has several qualities and characteristics that are quite unique. For example, it's not that hard to build a piece of software that detects skin tone different kinds of skin tone and different you know differently if, uh, effectively uh, but still it's easy to sort of build a filter that filters out uh, where there is a, a huge amount of skin tone in a picture for example or a huge amount of something that seems as if it's adult nudity nudity is detect you can detect it through through a visual analysis of a picture um, and whenever you and sort of that's one part of it, it's the ease of detection the second part of it is that the nudity also seems to have uh, less of a harm if you remove false positives if you remove pictures of of a man who is flexing his muscles on the beach to show how strong he is, etc. And you remove that for adult nudity, um, the harm, the overall social harm, the harm to expression, the harm to public discourse seems to be minimal. Um, are there other things about nudity that make it a specific category? And are there other things like this that you think actually make it impossible to do what we do in nudity for other categories of content? I mean, I, I think you've um, put your finger on, on a really important uh, test for platforms. And, and I often think it's, it's a bit like, like um, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, that that when people look at platform rules, that they, they can look at them and they can say, oh, no, 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 too hard. When Goldilocks lies on the bears, no, that one's too hard or too soft. Um, but it's really hard to get it just right. And platforms are often face with that choice too hard or too soft so on on nudity you're right too hard means you know be tougher on the content except 
that you're going to have a certain amount of false positives, remove that content because the risk of being too soft is that you are going to allow through stuff which is really, really, truly dangerous. Um, and therefore, uh, if we're going to err on one side, we're going to err on the too hard side rather than the too soft side. And But I think that does apply equally in other areas. And again, if you look at some of the external oversight board decisions, they looked at ones around hate speech. And there was an example of uh, uh, anti-Muslim hate speech uh, in the context of Myanmar, where, um, uh, again, <laughs> you can imagine why, uh, with everything that's happened in Myanmar and the record of Facebook in particular, that they felt they wanted, if anything, to be They'd rather be too hard than too soft. They'd rather take more down than less down. And the oversight board has looked at it and, and sort of said, well, we don't think it quite you know, passes the bar for being sufficiently over hate speech that you should take it down. So I think this is this sort of idea of are we, are we if we're going to err, err uh, which way are we going to go, I think applies across a whole range of different policies. And, and I think with new to you, right, right, it does get built into algorithms. I mean, that's one way it gets built in, but it also gets built into reviewer judgments. Um, I, I happen to agree with you. I don't think it's the end of the world if a, a, a photo of you naked gets taken down. I, I, do, I do think that some of the exceptions that have been made are important, like like the health exception, you know, breast cancer uh, imagery, totally. breastfeeding imagery, all of these things. I, I think those are really important exceptions that have been built in there. Um, uh, but I think, you know, the, the f- photo of myself on the, on the beach, you know, ha- and again, there are literally rules on, you know, how much butt crack can be shown before it qualifies as nude or, uh, um, you know, exactly. Those have to be very culturally different. I mean, we, we'll come back to this issue, but it fe- I feel like the butt crack rule has to be very different across different cultures. <laughs> yeah. Taste and decency question. And then, yeah, and, and I say this is the sort of more, more humorous end of some of these decisions, but, you know, if, if somebody is wearing uh, a fishnet top, a string top, uh, exactly how much of the string cloth needs to be across the nipple for the nipple to count as clothes versus unclothed. I mean, these are these are where people end up going in the policies, um, and they have to if they if they if they're trying to sort of enforce against a whole variety of content. It shows how hard that job actually is. To well, your earlier point, and it, how how much thought goes into it. Incredibly, because someone's got to make that decision. And so I say, I, for me, it's not the end of the world if it's a little over restrictive. There was one case that. I don't know if he's even closed yet, but this is like a um, case I always found slightly, well, slightly well out of control, which is uh, of this image, L'Origine du Monde. And if you know that, uh, it's, a, it's a French painting, which is, um, again, if you look at it, if you, if you search for it on Google, L'Origine du Monde, um, Google Safe Search won't show it to you <laughs> because it is a very sort of photo real painting and uh, that was taken down in France and and the person who who lost that content um, uh, ended up suing the Facebook and it, it went on like endless court cases for years and years and years and years and the claim was you know this is outrageous that Facebook was interfering with their freedom of expression in, in, in that case um, they'd actually made a mistake because art imageries are excluded from the policy again quite rightly because I think we if the aim is to prevent sort of sexualized content, I think we mo- most of us have understand that art is not intended to be sexual. Uh, it's intended for a different purpose. So there is this artistic expression exception, but clearly the reviewer had seen it and thought it was a photo, you know, not not a, an artwork. I mean, if, if it was a Picasso nude, I, I would uh, accept the complaint that that person, the reviewer, was a philistine for not spotting the difference. With this one, frankly, I think most of us would might struggle to spot the difference. Um, but this became this like huge sort of blow-up thing that ran through the courts and courts and courts. 
And that, as I say, for me, does feel disproportionate. I think, again, if the platform explains what it's doing from first principles, we don't permit nudity for these reasons, not because we're prudes, not because we're American, but because, you know, we need to prevent these harms and the blanket ban is the only way we think we can realistically prevent these harms, first principle. Uh, uh, but we do have an art exception because uh, we recognise that art is different. Uh, and in this case, uh, we just screwed up <laughs> and somebody took it down when they shouldn't have done. Can we all move on? I mean, that would have been a nice way to resolve it. In the end, it ended up sort of being the very long-term thing. And again, that's another of these challenges that every time a platform makes a decision, I mean, sometimes it could be wrong in terms of its own policies. It can take on a whole life of its own and, and get blown up into into some incredible story of, you know, and, uh, platforms employ Philistines who don't understand what art is and, da, 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 and off we go, when the answer is often a lot simpler than that. And, and people are, and, and I think that also highlights uh, uh, the the great care people take when they think about the construction of this new public space and how that public space is being governed. So I, I do think it reflects, a, a, in a sense, a healthy interest in how this works. But you're right; sometimes it can be completely, it can go overboard. Um, and I, I, I think this. Oh, I. I want to remain in this sort of issue of art for a bit because I think it's interesting and I think it's it's going to be increasingly hard going forward. Um, and, and one of the questions, you know, in your harm-centric framework, as we look at that, and we now know uh, that you can generate photographic images of no one uh, with machine learning algorithms that can essentially make photorealistic faces and photorealistic nudes and photorealistic pornography in different ways where where the sort of the actual subject um just doesn't exist uh, how do you think platforms should handle that going forward should they look at social harm or pornography and suddenly start to develop a position on that because there's no individual harm here or should it just let that go through i mean i think it's, this is uh, this needs to be um, work through and it's again not entirely new I remember when um, Second Life you remember Second Life when that first happened uh, which I do the first sort of virtual environment and there were questions then again that came up pretty quickly to say if somebody is pretending in their Second Life that Avatar is, is of an underage person a minor and they're engaging in some kind of virtual sexual activity with someone else what status should that have? What should we what should we think or feel about um, somebody uh, having it? I mean, these are two adults, but they are creating a scenario in which one of them or both of them are acting as children and 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 um, uh, impersonating doing something that would be illegal if it happened in the real world. And so these are not entirely new. I do think um, I'm not sure we're addressing them with sufficient urgency because I do I do think there is around. Uh, um, you know, sort of faked images, digitally produced images, digitally manipulated images uh, around role play. All of these questions, I think, um, uh, should be addressed. There are people in platforms who are having to do this now, and again, I think we should we should avoid that because this stuff is happening. Um, I can then give a personal opinion, which I think is is you know, if um, uh, well. Personal opinion would be, I think we um, do need to defer to experts, and I am not, so I should be really clear, I'm not an expert on the psychology of things like child abuse and, and um, sexual abuse. Um, but I can give you a, a, a sort of politician's shoot, shoot from the hip answer, which is, you know, there are certain forms of activity which, even if they're virtual, are, are kind of so uh, problematic, offensive, 
um, that if I was running a platform, I would want to prohibit them. And so it's not enough for someone to say to me, well, nobody was actually harmed, you know, in the in the interaction that took place. There are certain interactions, I say, that are so problematic and offensive that um, you, you just shouldn't permit them. But this is where nudity again becomes an interesting example, I think, because what you're what you're uh, saying is that I mean, it's fairly clear cut for me when we talk about the individual harm uh, pictures of, of nudity, where the nudity is not consensual. Uh, even if we talk about adult nudity and we talk about non consensual, there's there's a a very clear harm there. There's a victim there. There's something happening that platforms absolutely shouldn't uh, allow. And it's about individual harm. What happens here, and what I think will happen perhaps in other categories as well, is that with these artificially produced images that are completely fake, where there's no human victim behind the individual pictures, platforms are being pushed to consider more abstract harms. There's an abstraction, there's a generalization around harms, and suddenly you're not discussing whether or not this is harmful for the individual, but you're moving into a space where you're making decisions about social harms. That seems to me to be qualitatively different and and also a, a lot harder to figure out. I mean, it is hard, but I would just push back on it being different from other areas. So the two other areas where this already happens, one is around um, uh, extremism. Uh, right, no, but, but that was uh, my point was, I think other areas are moving in the same direction. Nudity is an interesting proxy for it. Yeah, oh, sorry. yeah, yeah no, great that we're um, aligned. And the other one would be yeah, uh, COVID anti-vax information. So again, you know, the, there isn't a sort of direct correlation between somebody saying crazy things about Bill Gates and a, a real world harm, but there's a two, three steps uh, assumption that saying the crazy things about Bill Gates will will um, result in fewer people getting vaccinated, therefore down the track, more people will die. Um, so I think you're right. There's a family of issues where where the harm is not necessarily on the face of the content, if we can put it that way. There's content which, so on the face of it, is harmful. Uh, let's go down the street and beat up some people from a particular ethnic minority. On the face of it, that is harmful. And then there's the stuff that's two or three stages removed. Um, and, and I think platforms are easily have to look at that. I, I think it's really important to draw a distinction between platforms and the internet. Uh, when we're thinking about freedom of expression, and again, we've been thinking about this some more and more recently. That that um, your freedom of expression depends on what you can legally say anywhere. Um, and so, for example, the, the issues we're looking at here: if a country has decided, having listened to all the experts, psychologists, and so on, that people doing sort of role play and fake imagery that involves uh, underage uh, people, if they're not actually underage, they don't wish to criminalize that. They've decided, and on, based on best advice, that they think that's a uh, legitimate activity or an activity that people um, can partake in without being prosecuted. Then that can exist somewhere on the internet. The fact that it exists somewhere on the internet doesn't mean that every platform on the internet has to permit it. So you can often end up, I think you will end up with these different standards. And again, that would be the same for these other things. Uh, The big platforms could decide that they don't wish to host anti-vax content. That doesn't mean that you can't express your views about vaccination and Bill Gates and 5G and whatever else. Uh, There will be somewhere, if there's enough demand, there'll be somewhere on the internet where you can express that. I think it's really important to maintain that distinction uh, um, between what's legally permitted and what 
individual platforms decide to permit. And, and I agree with that. I think the distinction is important, definitely. But but uh, I think we also agree that that uh, that platforms, social media, etc., form an, an important part of the public sphere, and then what they decide has an impact on the public sphere. Sometimes a, a fairly significant impact on the public sphere. Which which is why I'm interested in this because I, I think that what happens here is that content moderation is going from individual harm that is directly detectable, to your point, to uh, more social harm that is far more complex and indirect. And it can be several steps, as you say, which can mean to you, if, if you if you essentially uh, allow anti-vaxxer content, the long-term effect of that could be that people who are in, in uh, vulnerable groups actually uh, suffer enormous physical harm or even die. And so there is something about that uh, that almost invisible escalation of responsibility being uh, transitioned over to the platforms that I think is really interesting. And I wonder if it's long-term sustainable. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's being very explicitly now transferred. So say the, in the UK online harms legislation, it's, it's encapsulated in this notion of a duty of care. And the, and the government are very explicit, this will apply to content that is not illegal. So content that the British Parliament has not decided to make illegal platforms may, under the duty of care, be expected to deal with. Again, I I think as long as everyone's explicit about what it is that they're doing as a platform, I I feel quite comfortable with that. I think the important thing is that we do understand what each platform is trying to do. Uh, actually, I think it's important there's a, a diversity of different approaches by different platforms. Again, to your example, whilst the, the big platforms matter, but let's let's go back to our kind of core subjects of, sort of nudity and pornography. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Facebook doesn't permit nudity and pornography. That that hasn't stopped <laughs> uh, people expressing themselves. They express themselves in other places, um, and so that's actually a prime example of where you know you could argue, well, it's it's a disaster if Facebook doesn't allow nudity and pornography. Nudity and pornography won't exist. Well, patently not true. They exist, but they exist in another space. And so again, I think there's a we can uh, we can go too far in saying, well, the large platforms, the platforms that are large today you know, all of them must permit everything because otherwise it won't exist. Actually, it will. Um, and I say nudity is a great example of where it, it happily has been getting on <laughs> uh, without needing to be present on the main platform. Now, things like hate speech and political speech, it, it, obviously it's more contentious than that. Um, but I do think there's a world in which, you know, we have, have quite different policies from different platforms, uh, potentially. Yes, I think the major platforms will all tend towards um, the kind of policies that I think most people apply to most public space. And I've used in my writing examples of things like sports stadiums and public spaces where large crowds gather, because I think there's a basic set of rules for large crowds gathering where you you don't shout racist abuse. And actually, you don't run around naked either. I mean, those are, not, those are the norms for large public spaces. So I think they'll have those. But I don't think that's the end of the world for freedom of expression. Um, what would be the end of the world for freedom of expression is if you couldn't create other spaces in which you can do, as long as they're legally permitted, other less orthodox uh, behaviours. Um, and I say, then, then the, the governments will set the rules for exactly how far you can go in those spaces. But but actually, I think that's the real question. It's not, can we make the big spaces anything goes spaces? It's, are we making sure that if people, if there's demand for other kinds of expression, that that can take place somewhere. 
And I, I, I agree with you. I think that's right. And I think the distinction between the internet and platforms is, is very often lost. And I think it's a good one. What I, what I, uh, what I wanted to sort of get at with the nudity question and the artificial, uh, artificially uh, nude imagery uh, is that it seems to me that, you know, one of the interesting things to explore and to think about going forward is, is there a point at which content moderation transitions into being social engineering, where you decide that it's actually uh, very beneficial for us if we can use um, large internet actors in order to to implement social policies that we think are important. And there's one example that's not connected to nudity, but sort of related a little bit to, to our discussion here that's interesting to me, and that is uh, climate change and the question about whether or not uh, you should uh, allow content that questions climate change, climate change deniers. You spoke about anti-vaxxers. Climate change deniers are an interesting example. We should probably do this in an upcoming episode because there's so much to mine here. But there is a world in which you say that uh, actually when, you, when you're looking for, for climate change data, you should probably not surface data that's critical of climate models, for example, because it's much better if people act as if this is true. And at that point, if, if you sort of have that as your general model, or if you say, uh, actually, there's a social harm to pornography and nudity, and so we are uh, expecting platforms to do their piece in making sure that this social harm is prevented, um, then content moderation transitions ever so so softly into social engineering. And I think that's, that's, a, that's an interesting set of problems to think about, but perhaps for another episode. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is. And, and uh, again, I, I mean, there are two basic tools platforms have to shape the debate, suppression and promotion. They can suppress bad content and promote good content. Someone's got to decide what the bad and the good is. But I, again, I think if it's explicit within a framework, ideally agreed between platforms and other parties in, in a society, then I think that can work. But I think what's, what I find really frustrating, and we, I'm sure we'll come back to this, is the fact that this is frequently not explicit today. So, yeah. so if my government in the United Kingdom, for example, wanted platforms to promote certain types of content on climate change and suppress other kinds of content, it should say so very explicitly, and then the platform should react and respond, and then I should be able to go somewhere and understand in simple terms what's being asked to the platforms and what they're delivering. And that's the piece that I think a regulator might bring to us that is really missing at the moment. And, and, and then I can agree or disagree with it, but at least I know who's asked for what and who to hold accountable. Was it the platform? Was it the government? Was it, was it the platform under secret pressure from the government, which is often the case today, uh, which is not very satisfactory? Let's just get all this out. Much more, much more efficient, though. I think Tyler Cohen, the, the, the economist, has, has uh, he often uses the term Straussian. You know, there's, there is a Straussian tendency in government, which is generally to sort of try to get at what you're uh, wanting to do without actually telling people what it is you want to do. This notion of an exoteric and an esoteric government, which is kind of interesting because it's much more efficient to do social engineering without telling people you're doing it. But uh, it's also very close to conspiracy theory land. So I think at this point, we're, we're probably well served to conclude <laughs> this chapter and uh, say thank you so much for listening to Regular Tech. We're to Richard Allen and Nick um, this episode can be found at Richard's website uh, richlate.tech um, and uh, as always all comments, ideas, thoughts or just you know plain objections are very welcome thank you so much for listening and stay tuned <laughs>